Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave and worship team and, and whoever got me some eggs and toast this morning. That is hilarious. Somebody was listening, right? I said, when I sit at this table and teach, which we've been doing for this series, I feel like ordering some, some eggs and toast, and somebody did it. It's fake. Doggone it. I was just about to say something very spiritual, too, and then I noticed... Uh, really, I'm just reminded in worship when we sing that, um, you know, that heaven is not far away. You know, it's, it's another dimension, it, and it's connected to our own physical space and dimension that we move around in. And, and it just feels very holy, right, to come into this space, which we've designated for worship, we call the sanctuary, and to worship God and to feel close to God. And in a sense, when we sing, we're calling heaven to earth. And that's where things are destined. Heaven coming together with earth. We're going to see that a little bit this morning. Well, welcome. If you're new here, my name is David Flowers. I'm a senior pastor here at Grantham Church. A special welcome to those who may be first year Messiah students and joining us. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, We have been in a multi-week sermon series called Meals with Jesus, Discovering God's Blessings Around the Table. We're continuing to look at table scenes with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, and we're exploring the blessings that God provides when we experience his radical hospitality and accept his challenge to open our lives to others around the table. And so moved, you may bring the pastor some real eggs and a slice of toast, but just kidding. Thanks to whoever did that. I guess you're not going to identify yourself. Okay. The first week was discovering grace. We, we were in Luke chapter 5, and then the second week, discovering community. That was Luke chapter 7. And then week three, discovering hope, Luke chapter nine. Last week, it was discovering mission from Luke chapter 14. If you missed any of these messages, you can always go online to our website and uh, catch up on what you missed. This really has been a good series. We've heard from some of you uh, that are taking us up on, on that challenge. And I hope that you will because next Sunday, we're calling it Stories from the Table. Pastor Melissa and I will be up here together and just give a a little review and introduction to some testimonies that we hope to hear from some of you about how you've gathered around the table and discovered God's blessings there, maybe with a family member, a friend, or a neighbor, a stranger, I don't know, whoever God has moved on you to uh, have a meal with. 
So if you're interested in sharing your story, we're looking for about three or four people to do that. Please contact Pastor Melissa. If you missed her earlier, she's right here. Wave your hand, Pastor Melissa. Yes. Let us know. Uh, we, we, we're, you know, we're a mid-sized congregation, but we're small enough to be able to do this sort of thing. And so uh, be brave, be bold, and share your blessings uh, with others in the congregation if the Lord so moves. But today we're in Luke chapter 24. Would you grab your Bible or your Bible on your smartphone and, and go ahead and begin to uh, move toward Luke chapter 24. You look in your bulletin this morning, you'll see a, a, a sermon focus that says something like this. Jesus continued to have meals with people even after his crucifixion. <laughs> Think about that. Uh, Luke tells us that the resurrected Jesus had a lengthy conversation with two disciples who revealed their true thoughts and feelings. They shared all their misunderstandings and acknowledged their disappointment, their grief, and their pain in that conversation. And after listening, listening a bit to this, Jesus then opened their eyes and hearts to God's plan and his good future. Isn't that just like the Messiah, just like Jesus? to share God's good future with us, especially in our time of need. Therefore, this morning we're going to uh, look at how we can have the same experience at the table. See the table as an opportunity to believe in the gospel and in God's good promises for his good future. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. Let's begin with our scripture reading from Luke chapter 24. And I'm just going to read through this, and then we'll go come back together and uh, break down a portion of this, this passage. Luke chapter 24, and I'm going to read from 13 all through the rest of this chapter. But I think that's important for us to, to see the an entire uh, episode here in the, in the flow of this in Luke's gospel. Luke 24, verse 13. The same day, that is the same day that Jesus was raised from the dead, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things, Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the, the women had said. And then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures? 
Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going to keep going, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it is getting late. And so he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it and he gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment he disappeared and they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour they were on their way back to Jerusalem There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me. Make sure that I am not a ghost, because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. And then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my Father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven And then Luke tells us, Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him, and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. And they spent all their time in the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's go back now and and unpack verses 13 through 35. And I know some of this may sound familiar if you were trekking with us back in April of last year during our Easter Encounters series. Some, Some of you remember that. Of course, this time around, I'll encourage us to view this story from a slightly different angle since we're in this Mills with Jesus series. You can read along or follow on the on the screens in front of you. Um, This time I'm going to read from the New International Version. 
Verse 13, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now this episode follows the empty tomb on Easter morning, and this is later that day in the afternoon. These two disciples were on their way home to a village called Emmaus, and since it seemed to them that the show was over, right, all their hopes have been dashed. All of their aspirations had died with Jesus on the cross. This isn't a happy scene for them. I mean, we don't really know who these disciples are, as you'll see, but it's possible that they experienced some of the crucifixion. They've been traumatized, and they're walking away from this scene without hope. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened, everything that happened. Maybe Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. Maybe they'd even heard rumors of the empty tomb. As they talked and discussed these things, Luke tells us with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. And it's, it's probably a, a busy road that's being traveled here. There are other people around. They don't notice this one traveler coming up behind them listening to their conversation and includes himself in it. Verse 16, but they were kept from recognizing him. Notice Luke wants to communicate to us that God kept them from recognizing Jesus. That's because their recognition of Jesus, as it is for all of us, who he truly is, is a spiritual revelation. This awareness that they have is given to them by God. Look at verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? You know, obviously, uh, Jesus acts as if he, he doesn't know what they're talking about. But lest we think that Jesus is purposely trying to deceive them, we should see this, I think, as a desire of the Lord to hear more about what they've experienced. Remember, they've been traumatized. Jesus wants to know what they're thinking. I think we should see this as a desire of the Lord to hear more about what they've experienced, what they're thinking, what they're feeling. Uh, I've been to a counselor. I actually see a spiritual director regularly. Maybe you've experienced something like that. You could think of Jesus doing something much like a counselor would do, and he asks them questions, getting them to discuss what they are feeling, what they have experienced. Look at verse 18. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And who is Cleopas? Uh, John 19, 25 says, Mary, the wife of Clopas, was at the cross. Scholars believe Clopas is a slight variation of the name here, Cleopas. If that's the case, then this is Cleopas and maybe his wife, Mary. That's what John says. And some also believe that this could be the same Mary who is the mother of James, which Luke mentions in the previous episode along with the other women who went to the tomb that morning and found it empty. And some have even speculated that this could be Jesus' own aunt and uncle. And that's an interesting thought. But it's not entirely clear. Between the differences in the synoptic gospel accounts, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, so many people named Mary and James in that day because they were common names. It's, it's really hard to say. Of course, it could be that Luke purposely doesn't name the other disciple so that we could insert ourselves into this story, into this 
picture. That's a possibility as well. But if the unnamed disciple is Mary, Cleopas' wife, then we can at least say that she was at the cross and she watched Jesus die. And in that case, it's likely that they were discussing the crucifixion and the so-called claims that Jesus had risen from the dead. But nonetheless, those claims must not have seemed credible or believable to them since they are headed home. Now, think about that. Which is why when Jesus asks them what they're talking about, they are visibly upset. And it stops them in their tracks when he surprises them with this question. Maybe they were traveling along this busy road and hearing others talking about the hoopla in Jerusalem. But yet here comes this traveler who doesn't seem to know a thing. Verse 19, you'll notice there, again, Jesus asks the question, why? I said before, I'd encourage us to see this as Jesus' way of getting them to share their inmost feelings with him as they head to the table, just as a counselor or a therapist. Here, Jesus, we might rightfully say, is the divine therapist. They say about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Notice what they don't say about Jesus. They said he was a prophet, that he said and did some great things, but notice no mention of him being the Messiah, right? Because in their minds, Messiahs don't die. And yet Jesus did. In verse 20 and 21, it says that the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him, but we had hoped. Look at that, we had hoped. You ever had your hopes dashed? Their hopes are dashed. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. We had hoped, meaning their hopes were dashed. The Jesus movement was over because Jesus did not redeem Israel, as they say, make himself king, restore the line of David, throw off Roman rule and oppression, bring justice to the world, fulfill messianic expectations and prophecies, bring the kingdom of God on the earth in the way they were expecting it to happen. And of course, they point out it's the third day. I mean, they're talking about prophecy here. They don't even realize it, possibly recalling that Jesus had said something about this. But again, they don't believe it. From what they can tell, nothing happened. And so they, they go on. Verse 22, in addition, some of our women amazed us. Now, now look at this phrase here. If you have the New International Version, it, it translates the Greek word here as amazed us. But I don't think that this is the best translation. Why? Well, for us, when we English speakers think of being amazed, we sing like amazing grace or, man, that's that's amazing. Wow, whoa, you know? Like that, that's like a good thing. But I don't think that that best conveys the idea here, nor does it fit with the next two verses. So consider what some other translations Uh, do with this verse. The New Revised Standard Version says they were astounded. It astounded us, this testimony. The New American Standard says bewildered us. The voice translation said shocked us. 
the Phillips New Testament says, disturbed us profoundly. (laughs) Wouldn't it disturb you if you heard these sorts of things? And that makes sense. Back to verse 22. Notice there in verse 22. They went to the tomb early this morning. Empty tomb. No body. A vision of angels. The men double-checked, but still no body. They, they did not see Jesus. And consider this. If this is Cleopas and his wife, and if she was at the empty tomb that morning, that makes it even more interesting. And you could then read this whole encounter maybe as a husband who doesn't believe his wife's report. Maybe she's testifying. He's like, you know, you, you didn't sleep much. You're distraught. You've been traumatized. You had a little too much wine. I don't know. Yes. Regardless, look here. Jesus isn't all that happy that these two are walking away disbelieving. Not more curious. Not more intrigued. Now failing to understand that this is exactly what he had prepared his disciples for. And what was written in the Hebrew Scriptures about these things? Look at Jesus' response. He said, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish, slow to believe. Literally, how slow to understand you are, how slow to act. Jesus says, all of this was foretold by the Hebrew prophets in your Scriptures. What we call the Old Testament today. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter His glory? Was this not what was supposed to happen Is this not the way that God works? Not the way that you think it ought to work, but the way that God, the God of heaven, has it worked. Jesus says, first the suffering of the Messiah, then the glory of his kingdom. First suffering, first trials, first tribulation, and then glory, then revelation, then resurrection, then their eyes opened then him taking the throne, then him reigning and ruling. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said, and we don't know what that part of the conversation was like, but think about this. For seven miles, Jesus gives these two disciples, and ultimately the entire early church, including us, a Christocentric, cruciform reading of the entire law and prophets saying, this is how the Bible points to me. Wouldn't you have loved to hear more of that conversation? For seven miles, Jesus says, this is how the Old Testament scriptures point to me. I I just like to imagine them saying, but what about this and what about that? And Jesus is just answering their questions. All the while, light is coming in to their famished souls to their darkened hearts. We can only imagine that what Jesus says to these two two disciples, maybe he started with the very first prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would crush the head of the serpent through a saving act. Maybe he talked about how Moses and, and the Exodus was a foreshadowing of what the Christ would do, which Jesus showed his disciples by changing the meaning of the Passover at the Last Supper just a few days ago. Or how the whole temple system was fulfilled in his death. Or maybe he explained how the law was never enough and only paved the way for the grace of Christ. Or how Jesus, when he was on the cross, quoted from Psalm 22, which goes on to describe crucifixion before crucifixion even existed. 
it's likely that he shared how the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, which comes up several times in the New Testament, which was prophesied 800 years before, was uniquely fulfilled in him just three days before at Golgotha. And then maybe he explained to them that since the empty tomb was empty, right, and that Jesus said he would rise, remember his words, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it, that means, folks, that new creation in the age of the kingdom has really begun in Jesus after all, just in a way we weren't expecting. And if that's the case, that changes everything that the future resurrection has broke into our present and has happened and is happening now. And then Jesus then for us becomes a foretaste, a signpost of where God is taking all of creation. Right, and if we believe the gospel and we enter into the kingdom, then we begin this forward movement. We enter into this new reality where everything is headed in that direction. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, said that resurrection, our renewing, has begun day by day in an inward way. One day it will take over all things, including our own bodies. Why? It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just, well, it, it sounds good. It, it gives us hope in trying times. No, because Jesus was raised from the dead. This isn't wishful thinking. It happened in real space and time so that we can know it is the truth. It's not pie in the sky, as we said, wishful thinking, things that people dream up who are suffering and are delusional. This happened in real time so that we would believe. And it changes everything. If you believe it, it changes everything for you. Everything then must be rethought. Think about that. Everything must be rethought. Everything must be relearned. Everyone must be reborn to see it. I mean, Jesus' resurrection is like the, the, the ending scene there in the movie The Sixth Sense, right? Some of you have seen that movie. It's, it's aging now, I know. Still a good movie. Where you have a scene that just totally reframes the entire movie. You have to rethink the story. And you see things that you didn't see before. And you realize how God has been at work and is now doing a new thing in Jesus. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. While it was customary for good Jews to offer this sort of hospitality, Luke wants us to know that they urged him strongly. Notice that. Please stay with us. I mean, we're really enjoying what you have to say to us. And clearly the presence of Jesus in his words had captured the full attention of these disciples. They urged him strongly, verse 29, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. And, and don't forget, they still don't know that this great expositor of the scriptures is Jesus until verse 30. Look at that. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Look at that. Jesus was invited as a guest, but he's playing the role of the host. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now, why now? 
Seven miles they traveled with him. But here it is in the breaking of the bread. Why this moment at the table, at this meal? You know, it could be for a few reasons. It may, may be all of these reasons. It could be that these disciples had been present in the, in the upper room when Jesus did this. And in that moment, it was like deja vu. <laughs> with these, the 12 disciples on Monday, Thursday in the upper room, maybe they had experienced that. Two, it could be that at this point, his nail-scarred hands or wrists are visible in the breaking of the bread. That could be a possibility as well. And three, because at this very moment at the table, after hearing the word explained, proclaimed to them, after Jesus had listened, after Jesus had, had, had sympathized and empathized with them, Jesus is now made visible in the breaking of the bread. The proclaim, proclamation of the word, the proclaiming of the word, and in the breaking of the bread in communion. I think the early church saw it that way. And though he is not seen bodily, he can be seen and touched in the table. I think I said this a couple weeks ago. Isn't it interesting that at the center of our faith is a table where we can touch the body of Christ? Back to verse 31. We're almost done here. Then their eyes were open. Then they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Just as soon as their eyes were open to recognize Jesus, he vanishes. And then verse 32, they asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us when he talked? Like, how did we not recognize him? I mean, we had all the feelings that we used to have when Jesus talked to us before, and yet we didn't see him until he broke the bread. The word for opened, the scriptures to us, is the same word used when Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Isn't that interesting? Luke is connecting that. It once was blind, but now we see. It's the opening of our spiritual eyes that is front and center in this story. And then finally, verse 33 through 35. They got up, they returned at once to Jerusalem, they found the eleven. And those with him assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen. While they were having their own experience, they had had a previous one. Peter had. Peter had seen the Lord. And the two of them told what had happened on their way and how they recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. My friends, we must understand the meaning of this statement. The Lord has risen because the truth has a cosmic impact, not only on the present. And I don't think that we've emphasized that enough. Certainly in the evangelical world, I know growing up, the focus was always on the future. And even when we talked about the future, it was in an ethereal sort of escapist sort of heaven, ex heavenly existence on the other side of the cosmos or something. But that is not the heaven, as I started this message off with, that we're talking about. We're talking about another dimension, God's space, which is really, really close. And that dimension is coming together with our dimension to form one new reality. You say, you really have gone cuckoo with that sci-fi stuff, Pastor David. And I would say, no, I'm telling you this because the resurrected body of Jesus says so. The resurrected body of Jesus is our reality, earth, married to God's dimension, heaven, becoming one new reality. 
That is where all things are going. So when we say the Lord has risen, not only does it have impact for what we believe about eschatology, that is the last things, about the future, about, about our, the aim, the telos, the end, the goal, and how God's going to wrap things up, but it has implications for the present, amen? It means the kingdom is coming now. Resurrection can be experienced now. Yes, in the midst of this war-torn land, in the midst of the battle and the struggle, but we get the glimpses. We see the signposts, and we hear the invitation to come in to this kingdom, to experience heaven now. You see, because this truth, because it is true, and because it has a cosmic impact, it means that Jesus was and is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. No one else is coming. It means that he is alive, and what happened to him will happen to all who call on his name. It means that death, disease, war, greed, exploitation, suffering, oppression, injustice, mosquitoes, cancer, none of it will have a place in God's new world. It's on the way out. Now, there's somebody here that works for the EPA. Maybe one day those mosquitoes will have a better purpose and the spotted lanternflies that I've been killing mercilessly, mercilessly in my, my backyard. Folks, for the risen and ascended Jesus, he has given us evidence of this. And so when we grieve, as these folks do on the road to Emmaus, we do not grieve as people who have no hope. We grieve as people of the risen Jesus. Amen. We're being invited this morning to reflect on at Christ's table and to remember and to celebrate this divine reality. Before we look at some table takeaways, take a look at this painting. I found this in, in my studies, and actually Tim Chester in his book, which we said this series has been inspired by, mentions this in his book, meal with Jesus. This is called The Kitchen Maid of Emmaus. Raise your hand. Have you ever seen this painting before? Any artists in here? Jeff, you ever seen this? No? Oh, good. The Kitchen Maid of Emmaus. This is a 17th century painting by the Spanish artist Diego Velazquez, creatively imagining a servant girl overhearing the table conversation. Now, much like many uh, Painters like uh, Rembrandt uh, and others, you know, you know or, or even Da Vinci, they would paint these ancient scenes in their own day and their own time to reflect their times, to bring it home, to connect it to their reality. And so this is set there in the 17th century. Notice the expression of the slave, the servant girl, as she realizes she just served the risen Messiah. Right, because she overhears the conversation at the table. Sometime after this painting was finished, it was altered by the new owner, and so that there in the left-hand corner was darkened out, it, so it just looked like shadow or darkness in the background. And so that was lost for a number of years. 
The risen Jesus had been edited out of the picture. The painting, though, was cleaned in 1933, and it revealed Jesus and the two men in the distant background of the upper left-hand corner. So for a long time, it was just a painting of this servant girl. And so the, the author of the book, Tim Chester, he writes, the Bible story was edited out of the picture just as our culture has removed the transcendent, the divine, and the eschatological, that is the future. And then what we're left with is just the washing up. We're left with rags. But there is more to this story, amen? There's more to this story. Therefore, we mustn't blot out the risen Jesus. We need this mystery. We need the power and the hope of the resurrected Christ today, sitting with us, listening, revealing the truth, and bringing meaning to our messy lives and offering us a glimpse of God's good future. And notice, as the artist imagines here, Christ has come for the marginalized. Right, because uh, these, these folks were marginalized in 17th century Spain. And yet the painter wants us to know, the artist wants us to know by emphasizing the servant's dignity that Christ has come for those in the margins. How might this apply to your life? How might it speak to us today? Here's some table takeaways. Just a few things that I thought of as we reflect on this meal with Jesus. I'll go through these quickly. You can take notes or maybe I've seen in past weeks some of you just taking a picture of this on your smartphone. Number one, the table is a place where you can bring your hurt. You can bring your disappointment and grief to be your authentic self. Is your table like that at home? or wherever you make your table with friends and neighbors and strangers. I hear the invitation here is to make our table a place where we can be ourselves, just as the two on the road to Emmaus were. Number two, Jesus wants us to ask questions. Put yourself in the shoes of Jesus. Notice Jesus' tactic, like, like, like the counselor. Before making points and pronouncements, give people space to tell their story and to share their pain because he wants us to listen first. We might learn something. And in our case, we might be reminded that we are all the same. I had lunch with someone on Friday and where we, we talked about this. This country would be in a totally different place if we did this more especially seeking out those that disagree with us politically or socially, whatever. If we would talk, if we would learn about one another, even in the church, we would see that we share a whole lot more in common than we differ on. And of course, the most important thing of all is Christ. Come together, give people space to tell their story, to share their pain and listen, ask questions before offering what can seem like empty platitudes and cliche. Number three, our struggles in this world only make sense by using the scriptures to expound upon Christ and the good news. How often does that come up in your conversations at the table? After asking questions, after listening to someone's story, do you come back to the truth of the scriptures? Do you come back to Jesus 
I think that's the encouragement for us today. Number four, breaking bread with the resurrected Jesus at the center will lead to illumination, freedom, and hope for the future. And I hear in that an invitation like number five here. Look at number five. Our tables at home can be communion tables, right? That, that's, what, that's what communion is, and sometimes that's lost uh, when we take a little shot glass of grape juice and eat the Jesus chiclet, you know? And I don't mean to, to, you know, to speak sacrilegiously about the way we take communion, but the meal part is lost often, isn't it? We will be returning to Intinction in October, and I'll say more about that in the coming weeks, but I want you to, to, to think about that. When the early church came to partake of the bread and the cup, it was a part of a meal at the table. And so I think that our tables at home and wherever we gather with others can become like that, a signpost to God's good future. It's all about perspective. It's all about our mindset. Do we recognize that Jesus is at our table? Can we hear him point us to the scriptures? Do we see his nail-scarred hands? Is there a place and a seat for him where we gather for meals. Finally, here are some questions for reflection to guide us in our response to this message. Number one, do you, do you see the table as a place to be authentic in your home? You, uh, a place to be authentic and a, and a place to be real? Do you encourage, parents, do you encourage that with your children? You, you encourage that with the, with the grandparents? When you're meeting with friends or even meeting with people you don't know that well, is this a place, is the table a place where you can be your true self? Oh, how we need that today. People feeling alone, people feeling like they can't reveal who they really are. Jesus wants us to be real. And then lastly, number two, will you make your table a place to listen to talk about Jesus and remind each other of God's good future. Will you do that? What does that look like? How is the Lord inviting you to be more intentional about discovering his blessings in his good future at the table? Let's pray. Father, we Recognize that your spirit has been speaking here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the reminders through this story with the two on the road to Emmaus that you are there to listen to us. You know what we've experienced. You know of our trials and our tribulation. You know of our trauma. You know of our hurt and our pain and how our hopes have been dashed. And you want to be there to listen and then to remind us that you've got this. That you will make all things new. And that even now, even now, resurrection power is renewing us from within. God, we want to hear your invitation this morning to join you in that resurrection work. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts about how we can do that. 
and how we can share your good future with others at the table. And all of God's people said,